Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Philip Ball. Philip is the author of many popular books on science, including works on the nature of water, pattern formation in the natural world, color in art, the science of social and political philosophy, the cognition of music, and physics in Nazi Germany. He has written widely on the interactions between art and science, and has delivered lectures to scientific and general audiences at venues ranging from the Victorian Albert Museum in London, the NASA Ames Research Centre, London's National Theatre, and the London School of Economics. Formerly an editor at Nature magazine, Philip continues to write regularly for Nature. He's also contributed to publications ranging from New Scientist to The New York Times, The Guardian, The Financial Times, and New Statesman. He's a contributing editor of Prospect magazine and also a columnist for Chemistry World, Nature Materials, and the Italian science magazine, Sapere. He is broadcast on many occasions on radio and TV and is a presenter of Science Stories on BBC Radio 4. Phil, you are very welcome to Brain for Business. Thank you for having me. Well, in a recent article in the magazine Aeon, you discuss the concept of imagination and you coin in that the phrase homo imaginatus. Let's start with the really basic question. What is imagination? It is a basic question, but it's uh, not an easy one to answer because not everyone agrees on how to define it. And I think the first thing to, to recognise is that it has meant different things in different times to different people in different cultures. Um, so you know, if we go back, for example, to the, uh, the Middle Ages, people spoke about imagination then and they had there was some notion that imagination had an actual power to create to make things manifest in the world actually to bring things into being so people worried for example that nightmares they had were actually physically uh, summoning demons you know into the into their 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 bedchamber um so imagination was 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 thought of as having this creative power the word itself is obviously etymolo etymologically related to the word image so there's an element of visualization in there, you know, that there, there's this kind of sense in which imagination is to create mental pictures of things. And sometimes when neuroscientists have thought about this, this problem of imagination, they've, they've taken that definition. They've sort of looked at it as the ability to create mental imagery. And that's something that we can mostly do, um, uses certain parts of our brains, including the part that actually normally uh, the process is normal visual information. But there are some people who, who don't have this ability. It's actually a, you know, a clinical condition called aphantasia, the inability to create a mental picture. So people who have this condition aren't, for example, able to sort of summon the image even of people, of loved ones and people they know very well, even though they'd recognise them if they were standing in front of them. Um, and I 
certainly took the view in, in my article that uh, although this was an aspect of imagination, this, this ability to create visual imagery, I don't think it's by any means the whole of the matter. And I think when we talk colloquially about imagination today, we don't just mean that. We mean something wider, something connected to the, the kind of in, intrinsic creativity of the, the human mind. And maybe we'll talk in a bit about what the relationship is, this subtle relationship between imagination and creativity. Absolutely. I think that's definitely worth coming back to. But I'm curious as well to, to think about how imagination has developed over time, or at least the concept of it. You, you mentioned the Middle Ages there. But has it always been seen in that way until now? Or ha have there been stages of conceptual evolution? Uh, well, I think there have. I mean, certainly in um, the Romantic era, for example, in the 19th century, uh, late 18th century, there was a sense that imagination was something you could you could probably say sacred, certainly a kind of gift from God, something spiritual. So William Blake, the poet, um, seemed to, to, to write about it this way. And in fact, he seemed to regard it as the kind of deepest uh, uh, spiritual expression of what it is to be human. So for someone like Blake, it was absolutely central to human experience. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, when we get into the 20th century and um, the ideas about the human mind and the human brain start to become more psychologized, um, I think it would be fair to say that imagination is something, I mean, I think even today in neuroscience, imagination is a neglected uh, capacity of the human mind. There hasn't been a great deal of research really into into what it is, let alone where it comes from. Uh, but I think for for increasingly the work that is being done is starting to suggest, and this is really what I argued in my article, is starting to suggest that we are the imaginative creatures, that this perhaps is what truly sets us apart from other species, our ability to have a, an imagination that is completely open-ended, that can imagine things that not only we have never experienced, but that we could never experience. You know, we, could ima we can imagine, in some sense, being the size of a pinhead or floating around in outer space or living on Mars. That, I suspect, is something that doesn't take place in the mind of a dog. You know, maybe we'll talk some more about what, what, whether other animals do have something like imagination. But I think it, uh, the, 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 there's a, a good reason to believe that this really open-ended uh, imagination that humans have is quite possibly something unique to our species. And that is an interesting point, because to, to pick up on your your reference there to William Blake, if imagination is an essential part of the human experience, then is it, to link forward to your comment about our canine friends there, is it purely a human construct or, or do we actually know? How can we even test that? Well, I, again, it comes down to how, how you define imagination, but I, I, I think the way I think about it to set it in some kind of broader context of the mental capacities that we and other species have. The way I think about it is that it's a little, it's a little bit like music or the ability to make music, which is, again, often seen as a purely human trait. But 
while one can argue that there we have found nothing amongst other animals that is like the music that we make, there are characteristics and capabilities that other animals clearly have that are related to the ones we use when making music. There is a, a, a musicality that exists in other animals, which is a kind of a combination of various cognitive functions. And I think I'd say the same about imagination, that other animals have, I, uh, some other animals at least, have what I think we could call imaginality. So they have some of the cognitive abilities that we have, that we draw upon when we exercise our imagination. And one of those is this ability to you know, visualise things in our mind. Um, one of them is absolutely to do with memory. Uh, you know, imagination is uh, memory is key to imagination. That when we imagine something, we're generally, I think, probably invariably not working from scratch. We're not sitting down and imagining, you know, something de novo. Um, we are drawing on experiences and memories that we have already, and we put them together in different ways. Now, it seems clear that some other animals also make use of memory in this way that um, brain scanning for example has shown that uh, for sleeping dogs you know sometimes they I mean anyone any dog owner will know they sometimes kind of make these you know little movements and little noises that show they're experiencing something like dreaming and in fact it's possible to show that they they seem to be um, by looking at the the activity in the brain they seem to be in some sense reliving some of the experiences that they've recently had, as though they're somehow processing that, that information. We don't quite know why or how or what that means or feels like to the dog, but it certainly seems to be related to what we do when we're dreaming. Um, and not just when we're dreaming when we're asleep, but dream, you know, daydreaming, that we, we, we seem to, uh, to, to do much the same thing. And in fact, one, one of the things that we're doing when we're daydreaming, if we look at the uh, what the brain is doing, if we use brain scanning techniques to look at what the brain is up to, like um, F F R MRI, uh, the, the standard brain scanning technique to see which bits of the brain are active. If we use that, then we find that the kinds of um, activity, the parts of the brain that are uh, active when we are imagining are much the same as the ones that we're, we're uh, that we use when we're sort of daydreaming or when we're sort of resting and not particularly focusing on any any specific task and this is a network of parts of the brain there's not just a single um, center of the brain there's a network of different parts of the brain that is called the default mode network because it is the kind of default that the brain falls into when it's not you know actively doing anything else so there seems to be this network that we're drawing on when we're imagining um, and it's one that is absolutely connected with, amongst other things, with memory. It strikes me as well, particularly if you link those final points back to the, the broader question of whether other animals or creatures also have imaginations, that imagination could in itself be linked to, to problem solving in the sense that if I'm trying to solve a problem, then I it can be helpful if I can imagine what the solution looks like or where I need to go to find the answer. And we know from research that creatures like rats and octopuses and dogs are very good at solving problems. Um, so 
possibly you might argue there is some kind of cognitive process akin to an imagination happening there or am I going too far off on a tangent? No I think that's absolutely right actually and I think this is really getting to the nub of you know what imagination seems to be about. Um, you know, we you talked about problem solving but actually <laughs> all of life is one continuous problem or as many problems one after the other not in the sense that, that it's all difficult but that we're constantly having to make decisions. What are we going to do next you know sometimes big ones sometimes small ones but we are going are having to make decisions and what that involves if we're going to make good decisions and you know that can be a matter of life and death and certainly would have been for our ancestors if they were out hunting in the wild um then um then we need to have some some mechanism for making good predictions that we we need to be able to uh, see what possibilities are open to us, what actions are open to us, and to get some sense of what are the likely outcomes of taking those actions. We may or may not be right in those predictions, but we need to make them in order to to, to decide what we're going to do next. And there's an argument that this is really what any mind of any creature is for. They're prediction machines. They're helping us anticipate what's to come and choose an appropriate action accordingly. So problem solving in the very general sense. And so how do we do this? Well, it seems that we and other creatures have, uh, have, have minds that are shaped to simulate the world. Um, so really to sort of imagine, to, you know, to, to anticipate what a particular action will lead to, what consequences it will have. Um, th and this, I think, is really the raw material of imagination. It's, um, it's the mind as simulator, the mind as uh, creating possible futures and anticipating what those futures might be if we do this or that. And I think that's something that all creatures, perhaps even down to creatures that don't have minds as we normally think of them, even things like bacteria, have some predictive ability. Um, that that's you know that that in a sense that's an aspect of anything that is alive that it has to be able to in some way represent its environment in a way that allows it to sort of make the right choices about what to do. And you know, it may well be that our minds are just particularly developed in being able to to do that, um, to to be able to predict the future, and that's really the the the, the basic cognitive apparatus that you need to be able to, to work imaginatively, that we're, you know, supposing things that might happen and the and the possible outcomes from that. In that sense, I, I guess the human brain and, and the imagination part of it is is helping us construct or, or view the future and, and plan out these scenarios of option one, option two, option three, and, and what might happen. Might that also link to some form of, of storytelling? If I can imagine how something might play out, I can tell a story to, to, to on the one hand, plot out different options to get there or different steps but equally if I am quite literally involved in storytelling there is that need for imagination. Well in a sense yeah, it's absolutely right that in a sense what this um, ability to construct possible futures and to evaluate them what that is it, it, what, what is that if not storytelling that's exactly what we're doing we're creating possible stories. Um, I think the thing that seems to set the human ability to create stories like that, apart from what we know of 
other animal minds uh, is the fact that we can use language to do it. So other other animals, of course, have communications of all sorts that you could you could call a kind of language of of sorts. You know, they have, for example, um, other some other apes have particular calls that signify you know particular threats, particular predators nearby, or or, or particular uh, warnings to 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 their the, the other apes. Um, but our human language goes way way beyond that. Um, it, it, it allows for much more sophistication of communication. And there is an idea that some people have, have suggested that actually the reason that what language is really for, what human language is really for, is not, as we might imagine, simply to help to give more precise instructions to other humans, you know, or to so that they can, you know, find the, the source of food that we've located more accurately. That's a useful thing to do. But there are some people and uh, one of them is a, a linguist called Daniel Dorr um, in Israel, who believes that actually imagination is primarily for what he calls the instruction of the imagination. Um, so what language allows us to do that other forms of simple communication that animals have doesn't really let you uh, do is it really enables us to communicate the experience to another being. So not just the, 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 the bare bones, the sort of essential facts of, you know, where food is to be found, but the experience of being in a situation and what stories can do is to uh, is to do that in a way is to allow us to um, to to communicate experiences that perhaps neither of us has ever had, but that we can imagine having. Um, so it's that richness of being able to create and and communicate to someone else another possible future, another possible life or reality. That's really, of course, the essence of imagination and of storytelling. And it, it seems conceivable, at least, that that's really what language enabled. It's interesting that so far much of our conversation of imagination has at least to, to my mind, so to speak, be, being forward looking. So what imagination enables us to to envisage those scenarios as potential futures. But what about our view of the past? How does imagination impact our memory of, of past events? Does it have any role there? Uh, well, it's actually, this might be sort of disconcerting to realise, but I think it's becoming abundantly clear that um, we're using, that we are actually imagining the past. We think we're remembering it. We think we're, we're kind of just, we think we're just sort of replaying what happened as if there's a sort of tape recorder in our minds. And if we want to, you know, check something that happened in the past, we just rewind it and we play that bit again. That's the, the picture we often have of our memories. But it's not like that at all. It's a much more active process. And in fact, and you know, there are experiments that show this very clearly. And I think once we start to think about our own experience, it becomes more and more clear anyway, um, that what we're doing is imagining a past based on just a few, just the sort of bare bones of, you know, of, of what really happened or what we can re recollect that really happened. There's all kinds of gaps that we're filling in without even realising it. 
And, you know, th this is why we're often wrong in our memories. And in fact, um, what's, it, it, what's really striking, I think, is not so much that we're wrong. We're all, you know, familiar with misremembering things, but that we are inventing <laughs> much more than we think we are. You know, there's a whole body of work on the the syndrome, I suppose you could call it, of false memories. Um, and that doesn't just mean oh, misremembering things. It means actually having a, a richly structured memory of something in the past that never actually existed, that never actually happened. And I think we, we do this much more often than we than we think we might. Um, I, I was I came across this idea um, seeing the, the novelist Ian McEwan talk about a novel that he was convinced at one point in his life he'd written and he'd put away in a drawer somewhere and he could remember sort of, you know, fragmentary aspects of this wonderful novel. And he was searching everywhere, trying to find it until finally he had to admit to himself that he just imagined the whole thing. He'd never written it at all. <laughs> And, uh, and you know, that's a particularly vivid um, uh, example of something that I think we, we all find. I have a, a similar memory of, a, of, of a, a book of music, of piano music that I used to play in my youth that I can almost, you know, recall the pieces. And yet I know, I, I've had to gradually accept the fact that I've just made it up. Um, but when I say make it up, you know, it, it's how do you how do you do that? Well, you draw on all the all the resources that we use when we are more explicitly imagining. We draw on the uh, on our mind's incredible ability to form associations between, you know, uh, disparate uh, uh, bits of information and turn them into a story. So really, that's what we're doing when we when we think we're remembering the past. We're actually uh, imagining a great deal of what happened in the past. But it goes beyond that, even beyond that, because, you know, that's um, OK. We might accept that that's the case because we're familiar with misremembering things. We're doing the same thing in the present. It's past, present and future is all in some sense imagination. And what I mean by that is that um, there's a great deal that we think we're experiencing, but that we're not really. Um, for example, it, you can show that at the peripheries of our vision, there's almost no colour perception there. What we're doing, what our mind is doing, is just imagining what that's probably like. I mean, it seems crazy. You know, it seems it's very hard to believe that that's the case because we, you know, we, we, we probably sort of think that we're just visualising visualizing the whole experience in front of us in perfect colour. And what's, you know, where's the problem? But all around the periphery, you're filling, your mind is filling in that colour, just as your mind is constantly filling in what you see so that you're not aware of blinking. You know, if we if we added up all the times that we're blinking during the day, I can't remember the exact figure, but you'd be surprised that, you know, it's maybe half an hour of, of blindness really during the day. But we never experienced that because our mind cre imagines, if you like, it creates a continuity of experience. So even our immediate perception of things includes a great deal of invention that the mind is doing based on good guesses of what's probably out there, um, which is using the same kinds of resources that we use when we're explicitly imagining. It, it sounds completely mad when you put it like that, but I guess that is the nature of human existence. And, and we've been like this for in various shapes and forms for, for millions of years. So we, we've adapted, I guess. I'd like to return to, to something that you mentioned earlier on in our conversation, and that is is creativity. 
what role does imagination play in human creativity? Well, there's a uh, th- th- there's a lot of discussion these days. You 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 see it, hear a lot and see a lot of books about creativity. In a sense, I was drawn to to try and delve into imagination because it seemed to me that that was often somehow lacking from those discussions. You know, I think creativity is often talked about as the ability to for to to perceive and forge new connections between things that are familiar, but that you know perhaps um, we we haven't sort of recognised as or put together in the, in in the same way before, and. This is absolutely a, a, an attribute that humans have, and a hugely important one for the development of our civilizations. Um, but I don't think it's quite the same as imagination. Partly because, as I say, imagination involves, you know, it, it, it's it's more wide ranging. It's completely open ended. It includes the ability to uh, embrace things and events and possibilities that we know, you know, never happen and, and ne- never could happen. Um, so I, I think one area where the, 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 the differences and the similarities are perhaps coming into focus is that there's a lot of talk now about creativity from artificial intelligence. Can we use computers to be more creative and artificial intelligence in particular? And, and can AI itself have a kind of creativity. Um, and that forces us to kind of think, you know, well, what, you know, can we reduce it to rules that we can program into a computer? Um, one of the aspects uh, to it, I think, is is innovation, the ability to come up with with new ideas. But how do we do that? And how would, how would AI do that? Um, and I think w- when... When I've seen discussions about creativity in AI, and we, for example, if we're thinking most AI today is what's called machine learning, which is where the computer system uh, is trained to do to 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 be able to do a particular task well, like play chess or classify images, recognize what's in images. It's trained on a set of uh, data that where you know we we tell it whether it's right or wrong in what it outputs and gradually it gets better and better until it's pretty reliable at doing that particular task um and uh we can do that with music for example we can um train it until the computer can generate music that might not be wonderful but it's certainly you know probably better than a lot of us imagined we could do without a great deal of training ourselves and some of it is is quite listenable and some of it actually some of the ai music that i've heard can be really striking especially when it's then played by humans with all the creativity and expression we bring to it but what i always want to emphasize in in situations like that is that the creativity isn't it, it it that it's an interactive thing it's not creativity coming from that mind or that ai it it it, it is expressed when it is experienced so you know when we hear uh music that's been made by an ai we are part of the creative process as listeners because it only makes sense to us because we are bringing to it all the knowledge, all the implicit knowledge that we don't even know we have about music, but that we've gathered by, you know, because we've been listening to it probably uh, since birth and in some ways before birth, you can hear in the womb. Um, So I guess I feel that creativity is more more of a social activity 
that it's expressed in a social context. Um, I think the same is, is true of, of imagination. Um, but in a way, I think with imagination, <laughs> that idea is more built in. If we buy this idea that imagination is about how we use language to tell stories, well, that has no meaning except as a social activity. And so, you know, I think there perhaps it's more explicit that we can see that um, to, to, to truly be imaginative in a way that everybody recognises, it's, it's a kind of communal thing. It builds on not just individual experiences, but the experiences of, of our communities. Um, so, you know, I think both imagination and creativity, I guess I want to try to get away from the notion that these are attributes that a few special gifted people have and that the rest of us passively consume. I think both of them are, they draw on capabilities that we all have to some degree. And when we experience them coming from others, we are actually part of that process too. And if we take that aspect or that view of both imagination and creativity being things that are shared by all humans and, and to an extent, um, possibly to a large extent, being communal, how might we then develop our imaginations? C can we can we enhance our imaginations? Can we become more imaginative, if you will? I think I think that my probably the answer I would give to that is the same one as I gave when I um, would try to answer that question in terms of music. So, I, as you mentioned, I wrote a book on music cognition and people would say, you know, how how can we make ourselves more musical? And the answer really is to say we we just have to stop making ourselves less musical. We just have to stop making ourselves less imaginative. And part of it, I think, is to get away from this idea that it's some special source that some people, some few you know, gifted people have, that it's actually something that we that we all have. But I think also, and the same is true of music and I think any sort of creativity also, we, we need to try to develop our social and particularly our educational systems so that the those intrinsic, those inherent abilities that we have that are, that are really, I think, not just part of, but central to being human, that they are not suppressed. Um, you know, that I'm, I'm sure, again, everyone is, you know, will recognise that, that, that children have these extraordinary imaginations where, you know, they come up with things that are sometimes bizarre that, you you know, you can't, can't, can't sort of imagine where they could have come from. And our tendency, or sometimes our tendency, is to try to constrain them, try to get them to be, you know, to say, well, you know, that's, that's I don't quite know how that could happen. That's not really, you know, re uh, to, to, to say, or, or to say, well, actually, you're meant to be writing a story about this, not that. Um, that's the kind of thing that will, you know, suppress and eventually kill imagination. So too, actually, will, you know, the, the, the kind of ways in which we see in education texts being analysed, being pulled apart into their component grammatical part, parts, a, a, a task that, you know, has 
important. It's important to know how language works. But that certainly I've seen with my own kids at school, and I think, you know, it's a common perception of, of parents that it, it, it's done sometimes at the expense of letting the the language and the, the whole sort of imaginative landscape of stories really breathe. So I think that's something we need to be very wary of in education. And it strikes me as well that that uh, over-specialisation that can happen far too early in educational systems these days and, and be further embedded as people progress into their careers possibly doesn't help when it comes to imagination and, and thinking creatively. I, I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that we, we also need to recognise that imagination isn't just something that happens in the you know so-called creative industries. Um, it it, it should be and can be a part of pretty much any human activity. The The role of imagination in science is huge and far too seldom acknowledged. I think that most scientists would agree that the ones who, the top scientists, the people who are admired most, and often, not always, but often the ones who are most celebrated with Nobel Prizes and so on, are ones that, that have a kind of, bring an imagination to what they do. And by, by that, I mean that they are able to make an imaginative leap just beyond what st strict rationality and logic would allow us to conclude or to deduce from science. They go just that little bit further. Um, and of course, it's a delicate game. If you go too far, it becomes, you know, unmoored to um, to reality and, you know, possibly a little bit crazy. Um, but sometimes, well, all the time, the ability to make that sort of mental leap just beyond what science, you know, the science of the time can reliably allow you to say and to go into a space where you're you're not really sure. But, you, you know, here's an idea to throw out ideas and explore them. That's absolutely central to make it to, for, for science to advance. And I think that I'd like to see more emphasis on the role of imagination in science. And I think that it's it's often sort of seen as, well, it's, uh, you know, OK, all very well, but how can you teach that? But I think that um, just as you can teach creative writing, I think it, it should be possible to find ways of teaching creative science. And I guess that ultimately is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the test of Homo imaginatus. Phil Ball, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Laurie. Our theme song, La La Song, Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution, share and share alike license.